This week on Inside Marketing, we'll be talking about the importance of naming and copyright when it comes to brands. Just how important is it and why is it important to spend time thinking about this upfront in order to avoid costly legal mistakes? So join us as we talk about the importance of naming only on this week's Inside Marketing. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. Hello and welcome to this week's Inside Marketing, where we'll be talking about the importance of naming and brands. I'm delighted to be joined by Niall Corcoran, who is Managing and Brand Director at CI Studio. Welcome, Niall. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Lovely to be here. Great to have you. And I'm also joined by Adam Flynn, who is a Solicitor and Trademark Attorney at FR Kelly. Welcome, Adam. Cheers, Dave. Nice to see you. Yeah, good to see you. First of all, before how's how's business? How's work? How's life? How are you guys in the office or out of the office? Are you planning to go back in soon? How's it going? I haven't haven't been in the studio, Dave, since March 2020. Um, so yeah, thankfully kept busy, which is great. And this experiment as as it is of working from home yeah. seems to have worked for the studio, which is great. But I must admit I am so looking forward to getting back to the studio. We're we're planning to get back in September. So yeah. hopefully soon. That's the same as us. Adam, are you in or out or hybrid? Yeah, same here. Uh, at home for the last year and a half. Business-wise, it's actually been a very good year for us. Um, I think there's a bit of worry, you know, for a lot of companies and firms at the start of the pandemic that there'd be a big downturn. But no, for us, we're doing very well this year. Yeah, good. Good to hear. Well, that's great. Um, so thanks for joining me. And as I said in the intro, we're going to talk about the importance of naming and brand trademarks and that and that type of thing today. So it is something that's really important and really interesting. It's actually never come up in the podcast before. So uh, I'm looking forward to this one. I'm going to learn something myself. Some of these questions are actually just stuff I'm interested in as, as we chat through it, you'll see. So we're going to kick off. Niall, you wrote an article and it's in today's Irish Times. I'd urge everyone who's listening to check it out. It's, just, it's a great read. And it, it is a really interesting topic. All I say, Niall, you wrote is a bit of a double header with Adam in fairness. So let's give Adam a little bit of credit because we were... We were, um, you were asking me that saying, how is it written? So it's a contribution by both of you, but it's, it's a great read. And it is, it's all around this area about the importance of a brand name and why it's important to spend time thinking about it in advance and to clear it and to do that proper due diligence at the start because um, it can be expensive later on. And we'll touch on that in a minute. There is a lot in the article. So I'm just going to pick out a few key points from the article, and just have a chat around it. Now, I read all the time, and I know you have to take things with a pinch of salt, but I'm forever reading about the death of brands because we live in an era of like a world of DTC. And I know I know it's a bit nonsensical to say the death of brands because because even own label brands are brands, private label are brands in themselves. So, but say electrical goods and, and the increase in sales of unbranded goods and consumers caring less about brands and the brand promise in, in classic marketing theory as we knew it. But Niall, I'm going to start off with you. How important are brands and what do you think are the most important brands codes or assets that act as these representatives for brands and consumers' minds? Incredibly important. I would say that actually just to that brands are dying, I think that more has to do with the debate around big brands and particularly the perceived decline of big brands mm-hmm. because of uh, smaller brands entering the marketplace and because of, I guess, new categories. But actually there's been quite a lot of research into this that actually shows that bigger brands are getting even bigger. And I, I guess, look, there should be no surprise there really. Uh, yeah, brands are incredibly important because I guess they're, in my mind, they're a shortcut to understandings, you know. So when we buy a car, I don't have the time to lift up the bonnet, look at the engine, check out the technology. So, you know, I trust the brand, hopefully, and if it lets me down, uh, woe betide it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, brands are incredibly important in what is becoming an even busier and, and noisier world. 
In relation, I think, to what sort of brand codes or assets are are really important, there's a lot of really good work by an institute called the Aaron Bass Institute. Mm -hmm. And they've looked at brand codes in particular and uh, and measured them for fame and uniqueness. And to no surprise, broadly speaking, there's about three or four typical assets, usually visual, but not always visual. There can be audio or other types of assets that generally are the key distinctive codes to a brand. So what are they very typically you know, symbols or typeface, colors, you know, all of those things. So I guess how you know that you have a really distinctive and strong asset is if the consumer is able to recall your name when they see that visual asset, when the name's not there, Mm. then you've got a really distinctive, strong brand asset. Yeah. And as I said, it's a really interesting article. And one of the things like I liked it because it got me thinking was you make this point in the article, which is, which is a great point that you're kind of surprised at how little brand owners, marketers or, or brand managers give to the, the process or the, the act of, of naming something. And yet as a species, human beings, we it's something that we place a huge amount of emphasis on. We've so, and so why do people in marketing have, like people name their, as you said in the article, they're, they're huge amount on thinking about their kids, their pets, their house, if they're rich enough their boat so but yeah when it comes to brands they don't seem to be as invested or interested in it why why is that the case well i suppose i probably am being a little bit provocative there because i'm sure there are some really great brand owners out there and marketeers who do Mm -hmm. um but i guess look probably because it's so easy and you know relatively easy there's there's no barrier to entry to to naming something in fact we as you say there yourself dave we we do it all the time we love to name things you know our kids our pets our houses our cars um, so, so it's easy and, and we like doing it and it has an emotive resonance for us. It has a meaning, if you like. Uh, but therein lies the trap, I think, in that actually from a commercial perspective, naming is incredibly important and incredibly challenging. And if you get it wrong, it's incredibly costly. So, so I mm. think it's simply that, that it's, it's easy. We like doing it. And usually, possibly when it comes to brands, it's maybe the first time that we've done it. Okay, so we don't all, yeah. we don't all create brands all the time, or get into rebrands all the time. So usually it's something new. So I, I suspect it's that. Yeah, but it is important. Like it doesn't matter if you're well. I mean, you're thinking about naming your kid. You kind of think, oh, I don't want the most common name everyone has. But like you don't have to worry about getting sued if someone else's kid is called that. So I guess I don't know why people don't spend more time thinking about it. But we're going to get into that. I'm going to play devil's advocate just for a second. So is it not the case that when we're just thinking about name and even the logo or things like that, is it not the case that the name doesn't really matter because the brand essentially then creates this equity. So who cares what you name it? The, the equity and the strength of that name is then underpinned by the delivery of the product or service that, that brand offers. So it doesn't matter whether your brand is called Cabri or whether it's called Herseries because the consumer will make their own mind up on how that product or service stacks up when we buy or consume or use that product or service. So like Apple is a brilliant brand. It's probably, it's a great example because Apple is, it's visually stunning and it's a design brand. But like that company would have been just as successful if it was called peach or something so is it okay i know i'm being i know i'm being slightly facetious but who cares what the brand name is david away i think you're dead right um because if you think about what what a brand is well certainly my understanding of a brand is that it's, it's any thought emotion or feeling somebody has when they hear your name it's as simple as that so brands reside in our minds so clearly the service that you've received or the product experience or the reputation of the brand or what people talk about it is your brand. But it's interesting you bring up the Apple and and I think you're right in a way that, you know, when you say, is it just a name that that they've built 
into a great brand. And, and, and I would think you're dead right. It is simply that. It's a name that they have built into a great brand. But actually, many people would probably know this. Apple, as a startup, ran into a bit of trouble with its name, uh, whereby Apple Corps, an existing company, which was owned by the Beatles, uh, sued them for trademark infringement. And it was reported at the time that they, I think they settled for $80,000 back in 1981. But there was also a condition to that settlement that they could never enter the music business, okay? Roll on, 10 years mm. later, 1991, they're back in court with, with Apple Corp again, and this time settled for $26.5 million, simply Ouch. because an employee in Apple had sampled a, a system sound uh, to the Macintosh operating system, which ironically, by the way, he renamed to Sosumi. Um, oh. And that wasn't even the end of the story, because, you know, in 2003, they were back again uh, in court, this time around the iTunes music, and while Apple Computer or, or Apple Inc. won in court, in the end, many years later, and this is reported in the newspapers, that they actually paid Apple Corp's half a billion for the right to own the Apple trademark. Right. So even a big brand like Apple, you know. Yeah, it's a great point. We're going to get into that, Niall, as we're talking, right? So it probably doesn't matter what name you give, apart from the legal consequences down the line in terms of consumers' minds, because you, you can create that brand. But that's where I think it starts to get tricky. So irrespective of anyone's view on the importance of a brand name, like what you call it, it doesn't really matter. There is one thing that actually nobody can argue with or nobody should argue with. And that's the importance of spending some time thinking about your trademark, making sure that it's not taken, nobody else owns it. And the article opens up by asking, posing the question, what do the Porterhouse Group, Kylie Jenner, Diageo and Beyonce all have in common? So don't leave me hanging. Adam, what is it? Yeah, so the thing they all have in common is they, they recently all had issues with their trademarks. So the the Porterhouse group, um, you know, they run the chain of tapas bars, the Porterhouse. And um, I've been there a few times, lovely food, lovely drink. They've been trading away the last few years, you know, with no issue. And they went to register their trademark for the Porterhouse as an EU trademark. Um, so that covers all EU member states, yeah. And the problem is, though, uh, port is a protected term. So, you know, like champagne is a protected mm -hmm. term. You can't just slap a champagne label onto, you know, a bottle of sparkling wine and call it champagne. It has to be made in France. And it's the same thing with port. It has to be produced in Portugal and it has to be produced in line with, um, you know, a, a set of requirements. So when they tried to register their trademark, um, the institute that looks after that body, or that looks after the reputation of Porsche, they took issue with it. They opposed their app, the trademark application. And the Porterhouse group, they tried to argue that consumers wouldn't be confused into thinking that Porterhouse was associated with mm -hmm. uh, Port Wine. But that argument was always going to be quite difficult to win, especially because the other side, they introduced dictionary references into proceedings showing that a Porterhouse is actually somewhere where a port is manufactured. Right. So um, that argument kind of fell flat. So, yeah, in that case, the, the EUIPO, that's the body that, you know, looks after trademarks. They held it couldn't be registered as a trademark. So, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be harder now for the porthouse to to prevent others from copying their brand name because it can't be trademarked. Right. Yeah. So it is. And I guess that's what the lawyers earn their money for. And Adam, I'm going to stick with you for a minute. And these things, they often evolve, like getting it wrong or not doing your due diligence at the start can be, it's costly legal battles. And well, Adam, you can close your ears, but like everyone knows that when the lawyers get involved, nobody's winning. Um, it's it, like, it's it's bad news for everybody. So we try and, I know we hear where there's any legal things. Oh my God. So, um, 
but that's just, yeah, that, just that nobody's exactly. winning financially. It can be expensive. So just yeah. like what type of things can go wrong? Can you just give me a couple of examples of stuff that you've seen or even famous case or even not famous things? What can go wrong and how quickly can things go wrong? And are there incidents of companies maybe going down the track of printing products or getting them made and then realizing, oh no, um, we this is already taken? So what are the consequences of not checking things in advance? Yeah, like there's problems all the time. So usually the big corporations, they usually would have an in-house legal team and they kind of check all this stuff out most of the time. But with smaller clients, they mightn't even be aware of kind of what trademark infringement is or, you know, the risks of just playing ahead and using your brand. Um, And in the article I mentioned about there was an alcohol company came to me recently enough and they wanted to start using a brand for vodka and I think it was a couple of weeks before they were about to launch, they gave me a call and said, oh, Adam, can you run a, a you know a trademark clearance search, see if there's anything out there? So I said, yeah, grand, ran the search, came back. There was an identical trademark for you know alcohol already. So I had to call them and say, sorry, lads, um, back to the drawing board. And you know they were like, oh, no, we already have all our labels done, our marketing campaign ready to go. So everything went into, into the bin, literally, you know, and they had to start again. Because if they had started to use it, then they'd be sued for infringement and, you know, the other side would have won. Yeah. So that happens regularly enough. It's worse, though, when you have launched and then a few months down the line or even a year down the line, somebody, you know, catches wind of your trademark and they have something similar registered or identical. Um, It's, you know, it's a lot more expensive to do a rebrand at that stage. Yeah, Um, I can can imagine. yeah, and I guess as you say, for the big for the big companies, they've got legal teams in house. Many of them, so it's probably less of a big deal. But I guess because we live in, in an era of entrepreneurialism, so I guess for the smaller guys who probably aren't thinking about that much, probably do a little bit of research themselves, or just they're so passionate about growing their business that they often overlook this. But on that note, if, if there's anyone in the market, and they're, say they're not working, they're listening, they're not working in a, one of the big massive, they don't have a big in-house legal team. What is the process? How do you go about checking it just in general? Is it as simple as give someone like you a call or how do you go about then checking that? How onerous a, a task is it and, and how much work is involved in checking? So there's a right way and there's a wrong way. Um, the right way is to come to us and we'll do a proper search for you. Um, you can do a search yourself on the trademarks database. Um, you know, you can go onto ipoi.ie and um, and plug in the brand that you want to use. But the problem is that if you do it yourself, it's only going to throw up identical trademarks. Mm-hmm. It's not going to throw up similar trademarks. And the problem is you can still be sued for trademark infringement if your trademark isn't identical. Right. So if there's some similarities, you know, you can get into hot water. So basically, yeah, people would give me a call or an email. They tell me what services or products they want to register their trademark for. And then we will uh, go through a list of, you know, similar and identical trademarks. And we will try to minimize the risk. So we might say, oh, look, these guys have this registered, but they're in a different area. So, you know, they probably won't come after you, but they might. And then it's kind of up to the business then to make a commercial decision on if they want to proceed or dump the brand and go with a new one. Right. Okay. Um, And again, this is more of a question for me because something that I was always interested in, we won't get too deep into it, but like generally speaking, if you launch a brand, so I have a company, say I have a company and I'm trading, I've registered that trademark and that identity. And then I go, I see straight and I go out of business. Is there a statute of limitations on a brand name or a visual identity? How long does that last? So, or does that become, if my company ceases trade next year, is that back available again as a brand for somebody else to register or how does that work? 
So the thing is, if you don't use your trademark for five years, anyone can come along and apply to cancel it. And if you can't prove that you've been using it for the for you know within the last five years, that's it. Your trademark's gone, and so that person who has uh, applied to cancel it, they can just come and register it themselves. So it's really important that you that you do use your trademark and you don't just you know put it on the on the back bench for a few years because oh. otherwise you'll risk you losing it. Okay, so we're launching a new suite called Opal Fruits. The three of us next week. That's what we're doing. We're we're doing marathon bars and Opal Fruits. We're going to make our millions retro sweets. No, I just want to jump to you a second. Look, it's critical to check out the legalities, but even apart from that, it's it's important to spend time thinking about your, your brand name, the look and feel, the identity. So what are some of the problems that, not necessarily on the legal side, what are some of the problems maybe that rise from your brand name if it, is, if it isn't a very distinctive brand name? Or as you say in the article, if it's too descriptive of your products or services, what type of problems can that cause? Yeah, I suppose, look, earlier on, we touched on maybe the importance of having distinctive brand assets and, and making it easier, I guess, for the consumer to distinguish your brand. So the name is no different. Um, you know, so having a name that in a, perhaps in a noisy, busy world helps you to stand out from your competitors is a good thing that certainly sets the right tone for the brand, you know. So simple things like actually letters are incredibly important when you're trying to think of a name. So, you know, there are soft sounding letters like S and L. Uh, so think of a brand like Lush. Whereas I guess if you want to create a tone for a very strong brand, you know, letters like NDT tend to be that. So think of a Nordstrom or, you know, Dynarod. You know, also as well, I think one of the mistakes that sometimes people make with names, particularly startups or early stage companies, is that they almost want to describe what the product does or what they offer in the name. And that's not the function of the name, that's the function of your brand. So therefore, they end up with uh, names that sometimes are, are too descriptive. And then what you find, you know, down the road, a couple of years down the road, they start to diversify, try to grow into other markets, come out with new products. But actually, their name is so descriptive that they, they've sort of really hemmed themselves in, into a corner. So yeah, it's incredibly important to think about your name and not just from, from the perspective, but also in terms of creating a strong visual identity. Yeah, that's a great point. And we might touch on MasterCard later, but I think all those financial institutions with card in the name, as we move from to away from a, a card um, payment business, the legacy of having card in your title as a payment function, and like in 10 years time, we go, card? What's a bank card? So I, I get why people do it. So no, I'll just same with you for a second. On the creative process, this is a very important step. And, and right to the point that you have somebody in your company who whose job title is a name, or that's fascinating to me. Tell me, just give me an insight into what's that person doing? Is that is that like a full-time job? Is is that person busy? Um, and what, what, like, <laughs> I, I listen, and I, I can slag agency people because I work in an agency and we're great, we're a great industry for titles and, and you know, my yeah. mates are nothing to do with marketing. They're always laughing at me going, oh, your industry is a joke. So I'm, I'm not, yeah. no disrespect to a namer, but um, is it a real job title first and foremost? And what's the person doing? Probably what I might call more of a, a sub job title. So yeah, there isn't, we don't have somebody that just sits down and all they do all day long is naming. But yeah, but it's an important function within their their wider, wider role. And indeed, look, we, we have a whole creative team that when we work on names that work in a conceptual and collaborative manner. But yeah, we do have a person that has a huge amount of name experience, has been doing naming for over 20 years. And I guess look, the process is, it's almost, it's like what, what I would describe as a funnel. So I guess, you know, once we've done maybe the initial sort of brand strategy work with the client, and, and particularly one of the key outcomes always of any brand strategy or good brand strategy is positioning. 
So we have a good idea how we want to position the brand and the type of tone that we want to create. And at the top of that funnel, we probably have agreed with the client maybe three or four, what I, I would call lenses that we're going to look through, okay? And, and as we begin to think about names through those different lenses, we're probably discarding them as we come across maybe brand associations that we worry about or domains that we think will be too limiting or you know, language and connotations. So the classic example is big brand like Kraft when they went into Russia with their new brand Mondelez. And of course, Mondelez was a, a sexual slur in Russia. So, so there's lots of reasons why you go down that funnel, why you mm. discard a name. And ultimately, you're getting to a point where you have a good list of names underneath those lenses that you then circle back to the client, their steering group, and collaborate with them. And ultimately, what you're doing is driving down that funnel to a point where I'll contact somebody like Adam and say, right, Adam, we've narrowed it down to about three names that we think are really working well with our brief. Could you do a bit of a trademark initial search and see if there's something we should be worried about? Adam, I just want to ask you a quick question. So in terms of those names, so is the service you offer, is that checking all those type of things that Mondelez isn't an offensive or sexual slur in certain countries? Is that the type of thing you do as well? Or who does that? I actually haven't done that myself before. But yeah, it, it would be quite easy to do, you know. But um, yeah, I have come across trademarks, uh, you know, in the case law that were rejected for being offensive. So right. if, it's, if it's offensive in say Romania, um, it's not going to be, then their whole, e, as an EU trademark, you're not going to get it. Right. If it's expensive in one, in one country, like, so yeah, there's ones like Niall mentioned um, yeah. that have been banned. And it's, We it's, might, Dave, on, on that, we might, we might actually employ, and we often have done before, where we'd employ a third party uh, linguistic company and we okay. would tell them the markets that we want to go into with the brand. And we'd ask them to go and do obviously sort of very obvious checks, but then also what we might call sort of more colloquial language yeah. checks to see yeah. if there's something in in, yeah, yeah. in France, for example, that that it doesn't directly mean something, mm-hmm. but actually it's sort of associated with something that isn't positive or great. So it's that sort of work that you would do. Yeah, it's worth thinking about now because I guess, look, culture changes, urban dictionaries are expanding in terms of what things can mean and they can pick up connotations. But I think, and it's probably worth thinking about, even if you're a small Irish company and you might think, well, I might expand to the UK, but it's probably worth clearing or checking everywhere else just because if it goes really well, you find yourself wanting to grow into other markets. This is, it's something that you don't want to be red faced about later on down the road. Niall, you mentioned something a second ago, uh, domain names. The way the chain of events used to be, because brands were around, a lot of brands were around before there was an internet. So you brand your company, you give the product or service a name, and then you say, all right, we better register that domain name. Oh, we can't get that one. We better get something that's close. But how important now, if you're in business, do you think it is to think of your brand name with with one eye on a domain name that's available to register? Um, is Is that something you consider? Yeah, I think it's still very important. Look, I know we all use use search more so, I guess, but you know, back in the day, pre-internet, it was sort of easy to to name companies, you know, Lego or IKEA, and I guess probably in the early stage of the gold rush to uh, with around the internet, people dot coms were much easier. But right now, if you brands still brands that we work with, uh, depending on on how sort of uh, focused they are internationally still want the .com because it says something about their brand. It's a brand statement. Now, there are now hardly any one-word .coms free to, to buy anymore. They really are gone. So, so what we do is a lot of sort of wording and splicing and dicing and crafting of words, you know, words that we think are going to work with that position and create that tone, but actually 
whereby if we get lucky, we might actually have uh, you know a free dot com to to buy, or certainly one that if it is owned by somebody, potentially could be bought for for relatively small bucks. Mm. But there's a classic, there's a, an example here even in Ireland of a sort of well publicised at the time of a relatively small tech Irish tech company that is becoming quite big globally now, Teamwork, mm. and um, those guys very openly talked about how they ended up having to buy their .com, teamwork.com, for $675,000. So, you know, not every Irish company has that mm. to, to buy their domain. So, yeah, they're important to think about. Yeah, it's worth thinking about at the start. Adam, I'm looking for free legal advice again here. Um, what's the position on registering a domain name? So I've heard... We've all heard these stories about people, like exactly like you said, like companies buying a trademarked domain address for $650,000. But I've heard stories about, oh yeah, it's owned by a private person who just bought a load of these domain names. And then I read that you can't do that anymore because like I can't just go out, let's say Cadbury was available. I can't just go out and say register Cadbury.com because it's nothing to do with, I can't just buy a stack of domain names. What's the official position on registering a domain name? So, yeah, that's called cyber squatting when you do that, you know, when you go and kind of rip off someone's brand and register their, their domain. Um, well, it's actually quite easy to register a .com. So, you know, there's nothing to stop me now going on. And obviously, Cadbury.com will be taken. But mm. say if whatever, Cadbury.eu or something wasn't taken, I can go on and just register register that. But the problem is when Cadbury get wind of that, they can just file a dispute with a, a body called ICANN. Okay. And they just have to show that, look, we have this trademark registered Cadbury's, you know, in the EU or whatever. And um, then they're going to win that dispute and I'm going to have to hand it over. Right. Um, Bertie Hearn, actually, it was a good few years ago. Um, somebody in the States registered BertieHearn.com and then they put up a load of uh, pornography on the website. And then they approached <laughs> him and said, if you don't give us a load of cash, people are going to associate this website with you. Now, in the end, I think that chap went to jail. I was reading about it a while ago uh, for fraud, for some other stuff. But in the end, I think um, I think he just had to hand it over and uh, for like a tiny amount of money because, right. you know, the, yeah. I think it was the transfer fee or something, $35. Right. Okay. Um, but yeah, cyber squatting, uh, it is a problem. It's especially, it's even actually it's more difficult now to find out who owns a domain, you know, with the whole GDPR thing, yeah. the EU with privacy, like you can't just go on now and um, onto who is and check who the owner is. So sometimes you'll have to do a court action or yeah, dispute, but I can't. Oh, well, that's cleared that up. I can, I can stop trying to find untaken domain names and, and think I'm going to get rich. <laughs> um, it's not, like we talked a lot about naming. It's not just naming, so it's visual identity. And how important is it when you're developing a logo uh, that you check for registered trademark? Now, the question I have is, how sticky is all this? So, like, there's a, one of my favorite ones. I was walking through, I, I think it was Aldi. I was walking through Aldi and I was kind of going, yeah, you know what, I'll get, I'll get some crisps, a bit, of a, a bit of crisps are my weakness. And then I, I realized what I had in my hand was okie dokies. And they were unbelievable. Like, they, they looked exactly like hunky dories in everything. And, and I said, what a brilliant name. But that, like, that's clearly a copy infringement, a trademark infringement at least. So it looks the exact same. I didn't even realize it wasn't a genuine article. So, when it comes to trademark and copy infringement, I know IP is quite a tricky one legally to win. Is trademark infringement easy to navigate or circumvent or very costly to enforce? Because I see what I deem to be infringement or really close to, like, sailing close to the wind on things. And yet, like I do, Walker, Little, or Aldi's a great example. There's so much what I would call copy infringement in brands in there. So it's obviously easy to get away with if you're just clever enough, is it? 
so it was little that you saw the okie dokies because I, I was there two weeks ago and I was getting hunky dory and I saw them beside it and I started laughing um, when I saw the okie dokies. Yeah. But yeah, basically, well, yeah, they have to be very careful. You know, the supermarkets, they do sail quite close to the wind, but they usually get advice beforehand on, you know, is this okay? Or are we going to get sued? And they usually differentiate it enough. So like the argument would be that okie dokies you're not going to mix it up with hunky dories, you know, with the two packs next to each other, like, because they sound quite different, even though everyone knows that's what it's, you know, alluding to. But um, Brennan's got in trouble a couple of years, a few years ago, I think it was like 10 years ago at this stage, because they brought out um, packaging that was very similar to Cambridge's, you know, the resealable bread, the whole wheat bread. So they ended up being sued for passing off, and that would have cost a lot of money that right. case yeah. to defend. Um, an infringement action usually will cost upwards of a hundred grand or you know even over a million sometimes right so okay. yeah it is it is costly to to do i yeah, think from just... the creative perspective david it, you know we, we say to our clients that we can we can you can never 100 percent guarantee that there isn't a typeface or something in some database somewhere else that's sort of similar but what you do try and ensure is that because the process of creating a visual identity starts with their, their strategy, starts with their brand and how they want to position, and then goes through a conceptual and collaborative process with the client where they're giving you feedback and you're further refining. By the time you ultimately sign off on a visual identity, you know it's gone through a process that to some extent is coming from, from the core of their brand and, and it has been conceptual. And that's probably how normal brands do it. But I guess in the case of of Lidl, I'd say that the NPD went like this. We want to create a flavor of crisps that is exactly like Hunky Dory's. It's probably made by Tato, probably at discounted. And we call them Okie Dokies or Hoopy Hoops. We're like hula hoops. Like <laughs> It's just... Um, but yeah. yeah, it's obviously... Yeah, I mean, I think... Yeah, it's a, but it's interesting. So it's it, it, you can be creative with it. That you, yeah, yeah. If you, I mean, if you're a brand, you don't want to yeah. infringe on someone's copy because you want your own identity. But I guess for a little, it's a shortcut for them to go, you like hunky dories, you want to pay a bit less. Okie dokie, they're for you. And you're touching on something important there, because actually often these these products are actually, you know, own brands that the manufacturer of the brand is actually making. So, yeah. so there's sort of already an agreement in place that the consumer isn't aware of. Mm. So because the, because of the proliferation and the strength of own brands, yeah. lots of producers and, ma- and food manufacturers, you know, to get their products on the shelf and to get some of that sort of action are, are happy to, to go along with, with yeah. the supermarkets creating their own brands. Yeah, true. Yeah, they need them. So um, open question here. In terms of the world we live in is truly global world. So, you know, we've seen, and, and to ensure that brand names are universally feasible and they're, as we talked about, they're not offensive or they can they can stretch into other markets or even stretch into other product lines and diversify in MPD. We all remember, I talked about it before, Marathon to Snickers and Oprah Fruits to Starburst. So I guess that that has become increasingly important, but I imagine it's very, it's much more time consuming and it's much more restrictive in terms of the names that you can, that you can apply things if the one name has to be available everywhere for economies of scale so what are your thoughts on that yeah look at look the idea though is, is is one brand you know as soon as you start having two or three brands immediately you're you're diluting the equity you've, you're managing multiple brands it's just more costly there's room for confusion so yeah but it's easier said than done you know obviously another classic one is, is burger king is is hungry jacks in australia uh, so even big brands sometimes have to have to do that but I guess, look, yeah, it's still very doable. Um, you know, we, we've 
worked on, thankfully, plenty of successful Irish brands that have gone global, that have gone abroad, and you know, they have one name. So, uh, yeah, it's still very doable, but it's something you've got to be really conscious of, and it is becoming more and more challenging mm. all the time. Adam, is, is it does it add much work? Like if I say to you, well, I want you to check this out for me, and it's in EU, if I start throwing Brazil, China, Japan, US into the mix, does this just make it a really, really costly and time-consuming, even though it's important? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah absolutely. Like you're, look, you're talking about probably per country, if you're doing a clearance search, at least a thousand euros. In the States, it's usually about, I think, four thousand um, okay. because they're more expensive over there. But yeah, yeah, no, you're talking about a, a lot of money. If, if, if you come to me and say, oh, we want to look at 50 countries, you're probably talking well over 50,000. Right. Right, so you want to make sure you're you've plans to expand, but it's yeah, it's worth yeah. Think, it's worth thinking about. It's definitely one of the things it's worth thinking about. Um, I would say there, David, definitely pays to be creative. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I get the marathon snickers thing. Look, it just made it made total sense, and I and I do understand. Lots of companies change the name, and and in a lot of cases, it's because they they want to expand. And more often than not, it's because they get bought out by another company, so a, a, they get a new owner, and they want to tidy up the, the house of brands. So. But there's one thing that I don't, I never really understood, and that's kind of changing your brand name or your logo and doing very little else. So it doesn't matter. I, I can say it because I know they're a brand, and if they could be a client one day, and I'll, I'll probably never be allowed to pitch them. But Aircom was an example. I thought, what's the point of this, right? So it looked like a huge vanity project and nothing else. So they changed it. It wasn't even that different. They changed from Aircom to Air. They spent millions. So we were the agent time, so it was great. It was a great campaign for us because they spent loads of money in brand building. But going from Aircom to Air. Hey, everybody, we've got a new name. It's not that different. We've got a fancy new logo. But everything else about the business was the exact same. The bad service, the, the bad UX, the just awful in terms of its its consumer delivery. So, I mean, what's the point? It feels a little bit like you have a massive big crack in your wall and it's crumbling in your front room. And you say, we just stick a bit of wallpaper up so we don't have to look at that. I don't see what the point of it is. What are your Now, obviously, you might have to be a bit more careful what you say, but what are your thoughts on that about a company who might go, let's freshen up the logo and let's change, you know, tidy up the name, something like that. What's that going to do? Again, I don't disagree with you. I think changing the name for its sake, just changing the name for changing the name's sake, especially if you think that it's going to be about wallpapering over some, some cracks, it's just, you know, fool's gold. It doesn't work. Um, I think, look, really, I, I, we would advise clients all the time, you know, change your name at, at your peril. It really is the last thing that you would consider doing. Now, there's sometimes there are commercial and strategic reasons why you, you should. And you've just referenced some obvious ones. There's like mergers or acquisitions or just we've got multiple brands in one category and that makes no sense. So, you know, that makes good commercial sense to perhaps uh, change the name there. But, you know, we, we had a client many years ago where the CEO actually initially in the beginning of this project was insisting that we change the name. And when we really got to the root of it, it was because he felt that there was the name was very stigmatized. So when we actually looked at the problem, the problem for us was much more around their, their brand architecture and how poorly they were communicating all the benefits and services that they brought to the community. So it became about for us about changing the perception of the brand and ergo the name, as opposed to, to changing it. You know, where a name change does happen, I think one of the things touching on what you talked about there, service, I think it's it's incredibly important for that to be a catalyst for change internally. Yeah. So if you are going to do something like that, it's because you absolutely are bringing about change, which will then be evidential externally. If you think it's just a, a communication exercise to wallpaper over something, then mm. you're going to get found out. 
Yeah, and I guess when you think about it, when we personify or humanize it, it's like, like as a human being, you might change your name because you just don't want anyone to know. It's usually criminal intent. You want to change your name, and maybe because of your, <laughs> if your service or your legacy is so criminally bad that maybe you change your name is in 10 years time, people have forgotten. Um, we're coming towards the end, but I just want to talk to both of you guys about, because we, we, we've we talked about visual quite a lot, but something I, I've read quite a lot about, and it, look, it's been around for years, is the importance of audio branding. MasterCard famously, I, I get why they might've dropped the logo because MasterCard, the idea of a card is not kind of future facing, but they've famously kind of made noises about dropping the, vi- the text from their logo and have the logo stand as just a visual identity. What are your thoughts on that? And, you know, in terms of the IP around that, is that is it the same thing? So open question, creatively, does it make sense? And then from a legal point of view, is it is it any different in terms of audio trademarks? Um, well, firstly, on the, yeah, the nameless branding, um, I'd be slow to, you know, to drop a name totally. Yeah. Like, well, yeah, on the audio trademarks. So, yeah, it's the same thing. You you apply for a trademark. So you literally, you would, um, you know, upload a, upload a sound file okay. to the, the trademark database. And that will be examined by the, the trademarks office and they'll see if they think it's distinctive enough. So the Intel sound is registered as a trademark, but I think the Netflix, you know, the yeah, you know the little sound bite at the start when you when you go on to mm-hmm. it. Um, I think that was rejected recently by the EU office for not being distinctive enough. I haven't read the case. To me, it's it's quite distinctive. Everybody knows that everyone yeah. associates with Netflix, but for some reason, I don't know, the office didn't think it was registrable as a trademark. So yeah, yeah, I think um, all your trademarking, yeah, it's mm. definitely, um, you know, a facet of your business that you can that you can protect, yeah. Yeah, and Niall, creatively, there's two questions in here. So if a client was looking for your advice, going, we're thinking of just dropping the text off our logo and just having it as a, as a, a visual, like as, a, as a, a brand logo without any name as such. Firstly, what would your thoughts be on that? And second of all, then, how important do you think audio branding? I love audio branding. I think it's brilliant. But how how important is it? And is that something you work on? Do you work on those things in, in your business? Is that something that you do? Yeah. Um, to, I suppose to the first question there, uh, I mean, one of, the, of the, the very obvious golden rules of any branding is consistency. So, you know, consistently applying your, your brand assets, uh, whether they're sort of visual assets. Um, but actually really strong brands, so big brands can, can play with those codes, okay? And actually, usually it's a sign of confidence and a signal to the market that we we believe that everybody knows our brand. So actually, you know, dropping the name sometimes as MasterCard might do and actually just having, you know, the, the two, uh, the symbol, if you like, or the colors, I instinctively recognize the brand still, even though the name is. So playing with brand codes is something that big brands do and can do, and often it really signals to the marketplace that they're that confident in the strength of their of their brand that you'll still know who we are, even though our name isn't there. In terms of yeah, um, sort of audio, yeah, I mean exactly what Adam said. There, there's some really great examples of strong audio, and yes, they can be really really strong brand assets and codes associated with a brand. So again, I hear the sound. Nobody tells me who it is, but I immediately know who it is. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, we're running out of time. Niall, just if anyone's listening, give me a quick sales pitch. What's your company do? How can you help people? If anyone's listening and said, God, I really need to talk to Niall, give, it, give, give me the 30-second elevator pitch for your business. Okay. Yeah, look, we're a design and brand agency. We've been around for 25 years. But I guess our, our core area of what I might, inverted commas, call expertise is around uh, brand strategy. So getting very much involved in identity creation, so creating brands, 
or working with companies on on rebrands. And you know, we've been doing it a long time, working across many different sectors, so from tech to financial to consumer, uh, retail, all sorts of sectors. And Adam, if people are listening and they want a bit of advice or they want to check, what's the best way to, where can they find out and how do they get in contact with you, Adam? Um, so they can go to forkelly.com and check us out. My profile's on the website, my number, email address is all there. Um, yeah, we specialize in trademarking and patents. So, um, you know, the conventions and all that kind of thing. Right. So it's yeah, not, it's not just around. brand names, it's it's inventions and all kinds of IP registration. Yeah, yeah. I would deal with the trademarking side and then we have other people that do the patent side because that's a totally different ballgame. Gotcha. So uh, we do both. So do it now, contact Adam or contact him when you get sued, whichever you prefer. Um, Absolutely. It'll be, yeah. it'll, be cheaper if you, it'll be cheaper if you do it in advance. And sorry, Niall, I didn't get, if people want to find out, want to have a little nosy around, see what you do, get some um, examples of some work you've done, where's the best place for people to go and look at some stuff and how do people get in contact with you if they want to? Thanks, David. Yeah, probably it's best is our website. So if you go to our website, which is cistudio.ie and click into the work section, there's plenty of case studies and uh hopefully interesting visual of uh, brands that we've worked on and you can get in touch with us uh, through the website. Okay, great. Guys, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I learned stuff. I was interested. I learned an awful lot. And that's why I like doing this podcast because sometimes, as we were saying off mic, it comes around so quickly that it's a kind of a real love-hate relationship I have with it. But some days I get to learn lots of stuff and I get to chat about stuff that's just really interesting. That was one of, this is one of those. And so thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks a million, Niall. Yeah, thank you, Dave, for inviting us. No problem. And thanks a million, Adam. Thanks, thanks for, for taking us. the time. Okay, sure. that is it, folks. That's all she wrote. We are out of time. So thanks for joining me. And I also want to say a big thank you to Andrea on sound and Kira in marketing. And as always, thanks to our partners in the Irish Times Media Solutions. If you like this episode, then follow us, tell your friends and colleagues, and listen back to some of the other great episodes. You will find them by simply typing Irish Times Inside Marketing into your search engine of choice. So until next time, stay safe. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions.